You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast. And I have with me today Rona Fernandez, and I am extremely honored to have Rona here with us today. Rona is a writer, fundraiser, and activist who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she writes fiction and nonfiction and is currently working on a novel. And before I transition into asking Rona some questions, I want to share a bit about how I came to know Rona and her writing. So as many of you know, I often work with people who've experienced immense grief and loss in their lifetimes. And this includes working with parents whose children have died. And one of the reasons that I personally am so drawn to working with people who've experienced the loss of their children is because when I think about my own life and the kind of loss that I could experience that might feel like unimaginable and and too much to bear. I do think about losing my own child because for me, that does feel like the kind of loss that could feel like too much, the weight of it. And so when I think about how I would want someone to walk alongside me, of course, I can't predict because I don't know that kind of grief in my life, would be to have someone who is willing to be with me in that raw, gutted, heartbroken place without trying to fix it or make it go away, who would be with me and try to understand even if they hadn't gone through that experience. And so that is a piece of what I very humbly try to offer others. And and that's a part of how I came to really be very touched and admiring of Rona's work. So Rona has written a number of works and one is a piece called The Ritual. And when I was researching a book for a class I was teaching I just remember this this piece is in a book called What God is Honored Here, Writings on Miscarriage and Infant Loss by and for Native Women and Women of Color. And it's a really powerful book, and I encourage you to read it and get a copy if, if you haven't already. And I just remember so many points in, in reading her writing, feeling so moved on a very deep level. And I felt like she so articulately put into words aspects of grief that can feel beyond words. And I think when we are grieving, we often crave someone empathizing with us, even a small slice of our pain. And and so to have someone really be able to put into words something that can be so beyond words and can feel so unthinkable and so unbearable I just so appreciated and the bravery and persistence that it takes to share one story in that way just to me is just so powerful. So again, Rona, I just want to thank you for your, your courage and your willingness to be a writer and to share aspects of your personal life with us because it has profoundly touched me and been helpful and meaningful to me in my life and many of the people with whom I've worked. So I want to thank you. So Rona, I know that because of the limits to our time today, we can't possibly address the true depth of your grief and what it has been like to experience the loss of your daughter, Naima. And so I want to make sure that we give time and space to acknowledge and lift up and name the aspects of your journey that feel important to give voice to and and to honor. And so I'd love to start with what feels important to you 
in terms of a place to begin? Well, I guess I would like to just talk about my daughter a little bit since sure. it is her birthday coming up. Of and, course. Um, her 10th birthday, which is a big milestone. And um, I don't get to talk to her, talk about her very much outside of talking with my husband. Um, but yeah, I just want to say that she felt like a very special baby to me. Obviously, I've only had one baby, so I don't know what the what it feels like to have another child. Um, she was a very intense and observant um, baby. She would come to me, come with me to work meetings sometimes, and it looked like she was really listening to all the people having conversations in the meeting. <laughs> and people would remark to me later that it, she would look at them when they were talking, which I thought was pretty incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, I wonder a lot about what she would be like now, who she would take after my husband or myself and what she'd be interested in. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to, I offer this partially because I like talking about her, but also because, you know, when somebody, if you know somebody who's had a loss, um, you know, it doesn't have to be just a baby, but I think especially a, a baby or a child, a lot of times they just, they might just want to talk about them, you know, mm -hmm. and talk about, even if it's hard to talk about them to say, you know, what kind of food do they like to eat? You know, what were they like? What were, um, well, what did you think they were going to be like, you know, for women who've lost babies at still with, you know, um, at birth, you know, they don't know necessarily what the baby, but what, what do you think they would have been like? All those things really help people just one, know that they're not alone and that you're listening and that also they're not crazy, you know, cause sometimes even 10 years out now, I, I think, was she here? Like, it's almost like it was so long ago now. I'm like, did I just imagine all that? Was it just a dream? And I have to talk to my husband and have him tell me stories about her. He's like, no, she was real. She was here, you know, and that, that means a lot. So, yeah. I really love hearing about her and I so appreciate you sharing her picture. And I'm so excited to, to share her picture with, with other people who are listening so that they can picture her too. And a part of the excerpt that I remember from when I first read the ritual was her gaze and the way that she looked at you and this this deep connection that you had from the very beginning that that is beyond words the power of that that gaze and it sounds like that was a part of her her energy and her spirit that she was so observant and in a way that was remarkable not typical necessarily of of babies that age something that people would often notice about her i I'm curious to hear a bit more about what your experience has been being in a culture that many people have described as a grief denying or grief avoidant kind of culture. And if there is anything that you want to lift up or speak to in terms of your own experience and what grieving has been like in this kind of culture. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Melissa, for having me on. I'm really glad that you found me um, through my website, which is um, for all the writers out there, it helps to have a website because people do find you through your website. Um, and um, yeah, grieving is something that, so I'm Filipino American, I'm second generation, which means my parents were born in the Philippines. And I feel like uh, Filipino culture, even Filipino American culture to a lesser degree is a little more comfortable with at least, at least the idea of death. Um, and I'll get back to how it's different than grief in a second. But there are a lot of rituals around death and grieving in Filipino American culture, um, which is largely rooted in Catholic um, kind of religion and uh, practice. So I know that doesn't work for everyone, but it, it is a structure that I think has been helpful. So for me, um, I think it's different than maybe for other folks who didn't grow up with um, a really strong cultural background that did talk about grief, talk about loss, talk about death. And not always, I'm not going to romanticize it and say that we have all the answers, like, you know, some, this, this culture has all the answers, but I feel like just because there were containers to, to, to grieve, it made a huge difference. So for example, even before my daughter passed away, um, I had lost uh, a really beloved elder of mine. She was kind of like an adopted grandmother, and um, I was, I think in my early twenties at the time, and I had never lost anybody that close to me before. 
And of course, I was extremely sad. She had been sick for a long time, but it was still very sad when she passed away. She was kind of the matriarch of this part of the family. And um, I had never also been through the rituals around death in Filipino culture. So we had the nine days of playing, praying the rosary. Every night after she passed away, everyone gathered at the house and prayed the rosary together. It was like clockwork. <laughs> um, all the people that she knew, family I'd never met before, friends I'd never met before, got together, prayed, and then we ate, right? So it was like nine days of kind of like a wake. Um, then we had also the funeral mass, uh, and then we had the burial. And then we also have it after 40 days, there was another ritual where people got together and prayed and, and gathered. And um, even though that loss was, um, you know, definitely not as devastating for me as the loss of my daughter, it taught me that if you make space for grief, it does make it a little bit easier, right? Like it gives you just the permission to grieve, the time to grieve, because every day for nine days, I could go somewhere where I knew I could talk about her. I knew I could cry if I wanted to. I knew I could just be around other people who were also grieving. And that I think is something that we have more of a little bit, I think in, in now sort of North American culture because of social media and because more people are, are have platforms to speak out. But it's, it's still pretty new, you know, whereas these rituals from other cultures are, are, you know, generations, centuries old. And we can really, I think, rely on them as containers for um, our grief. Um, and you know, I, just, I do want to just say, too, that it, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, <laughs> Filipinos are, uh, you know, the best people to grieve or know how to grieve really well. I think there's still a lot of barriers to feeling really comfortable with sadness in particular, because at these kind of gatherings, sometimes things can become very celebratory, which is also part of like, you know, um, when people uh, pass over, you know, we want to celebrate their lives. But I feel like in this country, we only focus on the celebration, we tend to. And then when a child dies, how do you do that? Like, I think it's almost impossible to do that because there's nothing, there's nothing happy about it, you know? Um, so anyway, so I think for me, like coming from this sort of dual cultural like background, um, I was really grateful to have the example of that, those grieving like structures. And, um, and then when my daughter died, those structures, you know, sort of gave me something to do. But I think because this, this loss and grief was so profound, it also um, eventually felt like it wasn't enough for me. Um, and so I had to come up with my own sort of things to do, which is part of what this essay is about. And part of, you know, just my own process is that we, um, sometimes the structures that exist for us aren't enough. And then what do we do? So yeah, I'll stop there. Well, I really appreciate you sharing all that you did. And one thought that came to mind for me while you were speaking was this, for many people, there isn't that that structure in place. And even for those who do have that structure, like you said, every loss in our lives is unique and can bring up different challenges, different complexities. And so oftentimes there is this need to figure out what feels resonant for a specific loss, even if there are certain structures that exist. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit more about what your process was like in terms of arriving at or, or cultivating a, a ritual or a process that felt meaning meaningful to you, even though you did have some foundation to start with. Yeah, so that's, um... You know, that was a whole other process to figure that out. And I think it changes over time. So in the beginning, I leaned on my, on what I knew, which is all those practices I just mentioned, the rosary, the, mm -hmm. you know, the mass, everything. I did that. Um, we didn't have a mass because my daughter wasn't, hadn't been baptized yet, but we did have a memorial service and, um, you know, spiritual, uh, spiritual ceremony around her passing. And one thing that I will say that I didn't know when I had been going through those rituals when my um, sort of grandmother passed away is how much it takes out of the people who are organizing those things who have just experienced an intense loss. Um, so even though I had a lot of friends around me who were helping me do all those things, I did very little in the, you know, I would say the first three or four months after my daughter died, a lot of friends, you know, did almost everything for us, cleaned our house, fed us, um, you know, helped do these events. But it was still exhausting, right? It's still like, yes, there's a container and it's still exhausting because grief is exhausting. But because I'm kind of a type A person, I kept feeling like, 
these things, I have to do these things. I have to do these things because this is what we do, right? It's, it, I almost kind of was grasping at these rituals to save me, you know, mm-hmm. as like a life preserver. It's like, oh my God, I feel like I'm drowning. What do I do? I'm going to do the rosary. I'm going to do these things. Looking back on it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't regret doing any of those things, but I do feel like they came from a place of desperation versus like a place of like, this is what I really want to do to honor my daughter and familiarity, right? I knew these things. These were things that I could, I could call on people to help me with pretty easily. They were very structured. So I do appreciate that. And I also feel like I know those things don't work for a lot of people. A lot of people have issues with organized religion. I totally understand that and respect that. Um, I even had people that were my friends coming to my rosaries and feeling a little uncomfortable, you know, but for me, again, I think the container was most important, right? Um, And then after the first, like I would say, you know, six months or so after my daughter died, um, there were a lot of things I was still trying to do. I would go to like, you know, grief retreats. I do workshops. I went to support groups. Um, So some of this is not so much ritual as it is, you know, just um, getting supports, right? Getting supports to talk about your grief, um, to meet other people who've gone through a similar loss. Um, Fortunately, I found a support group called HAND here in the Bay Area, which is um, a support group for families, uh, parents who have lost children to stillbirth or early or miscarriage or infant loss. And fortunately, you know, although it was very unfortunate for both of us, there was another family there who had just lost their daughter to SIDS. So my daughter passed from sudden infant death syndrome. They had lost their daughter. She was around the same age as our daughter was like maybe three weeks earlier. It's just coincidence that, you know, they happened to be at the support group. And so we had this other couple to kind of walk on this path with. They had a they had a um, an older child, so their situation was a little different than ours. But it helped a lot just to have another person in the flesh, you know, a man and a woman heterosexual couple who had just gone through what we were going through. You know, they handled things in a different way, but we didn't have to explain anything to them. You know, we could just talk about our losses and know that they got it right. I think that just that seeing and and recognizing and being affirmed by another's presence is super, super important. Um, can you say your question again? Cause I feel like I'm rambling a little bit and I'm not sure if I'm answering it, but yeah. <laughs> all, all that you're sharing is, is still within the realm of this question. And even okay. if it weren't, that would be totally welcome as well. But I was, and you have spoken to this already, wanting to just hear a bit more about your own process or the phases through which you went in arriving at these different rituals and processes for, for mourning and connecting with your grief and and honoring your daughter, Naima. Right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So at first it was like, let's do all the familiar things. Right. And those helped sort of, but they always, you know, at the end, you're still left with your grief. And it was, it's still, I mean, I was, it took me months to be able to get out of bed in the morning, you know, after laying there for like hours and hours, not wanting to do anything. Um, And again, I'm a type A person. I'm like, this is not who I am. But the best advice I got about grieving was actually from my daughter's pediatrician, who we went to go see after she passed away to go over her, um, her autopsy report and, uh, you know, ask questions about, you know, could we have done anything? And of course we couldn't have. And, and she was very compassionate, very um, wise person. And she said, you know, I want you to take care of your body. I want you to get rest and sleep and eat well, because grieving is really hard work. And at the time, like it sort of made sense, but because I was in the middle of it, it, you know, it was just kind of like, but I have stuff to do. I have to like do all these things, but looking back on it. And, you know, as I, kept going in my grief she was completely right like all you can do is literally take care of your body so that you can survive and the rituals and all the things that um you know we're told to do if they help great sometimes they won't and that's not anybody's fault it's just really hard right there's no recipe there's no pill there's no five steps to like getting over your grief, you actually have to grieve. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the hardest part, I think, for a lot of people. And especially I think in this culture that is grief denying, as you said, it's like, I wanna just get it over with. And that's actually just not how it works. It has its own timeline. It's completely unpredictable. And so, um, so anyway, when I, when I realized that all my usual tools, like my writing, my, you know, my friends, my family, whatever, weren't really helpful 
thing. <laughs> like I still felt so devastated because the person I wanted, what I needed was my daughter. I couldn't have that. So um, it took a long time, just, you know, sort of trial and error. Um, a lot of time spent in nature. Nature was always like the place where I could go, where I felt the most held. Um, there's no judgment in nature. You know, nature's like, not like you're doing it wrong, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> I don't want to listen to you. Nature just is there and is, gives you her beauty and space to, uh, you know, receive her energy. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time, especially when my husband went back to work, because we both took four months off. We were able to take time off because our friends um, fundraised for us to be able to do that, which was an incredible gift. We did some traveling. We went to visit my um, godmother in Hawaii. So we had some like healing time, which is very much a privilege. I know most people don't get to do that. But then he had to go back to work. And it was pretty terrifying, the idea of being alone without my child, without my husband in the house. And um, I turned to, I don't even know how I came across this, but it might have been in like a baby loss Facebook group I was in, but I, I turned to scrapbooking, <laughs> which I'd never done before. But I had all these pictures of her and I wanted to do something with them. You know, I wanted to like have a way to sit and think about her and, um, you know, look at her pictures, which I was doing all the time anyway, and then create something with them. So I started making scrapbooks for um, her babysitter, which is where she actually passed away. So she passed away during a daytime nap at her daycare. I made one for her babysitter. I made one for her godparents. I made one for, you know, just different people that loved her. Um, and it was very healing, you know, like it's, it's not a religious or spiritual practice, um, but it did become one for me. And, uh, and now I have, you know, her pictures and stories about her in different people's homes and houses all over the place. And that makes me feel better that she won't be forgotten. Um, and I did that, you know, when my husband was gone, just to kind of occupy myself and to give myself my days some focus because I wasn't back at work yet. And I think that it really saved me. <laughs> it saved my life to do those scrapbooks and just have a have something constructive to kind of look forward to doing every day. So, yeah. I really appreciate you highlighting how there can be so much trial and error involved, like leaning into what is feeling helpful and even in terms of the kinds of supports that are needed. I, I know that so often when many of us are in grief, there is that hunger to be around someone who gets it on some level, someone who's been through a similar loss, even though of course there are so many unique features of losses, even when there's a shared commonality, but, and even that process can be trial and error in terms of finding people that really do feel resonant and connected and nurturing or nourishing or whatever it is that is needed. Fi finding that can be a challenge. So this practice of really listening to yourself about what feels needed and allowing it to be what it is, even if it doesn't fit into this sort of prescribed idea of what we might've internalized from other people or other systems. And the words from your pediatrician about the hard work of grieving, I, I just think that's so powerful and something that can be easy to forget when we're distant from grief or um, haven't been in the immediate aftermath of a loss, that it is exhausting and it is so taxing on mental and physical and emotional and spiritual levels. And a lot of that hard work, it needs that container and that space, as you said, and figuring out how to create that space seems like an important piece for many of us so that the work of grieving can be done. Because like you said, there really isn't much to do other than to grieve and to, there's no fast track through grief. There's no way to just press fast forward and get through it. And it's for many of us, again, we all think about it and define it differently. But one way that I often think about it is living with your grief, figuring out how to be in your life with this 
this grief. It's, it becomes a part of your life. It's not necessarily something that you finish like a book chapter, like it's still there. And it may be the shape of it changes the texture of it. Um, and there's ebb and flow and, and all of that, but that can't happen. That integration can't happen unless we make space for it because it's here. So I, I just think a lot of what, what you shared is, is really, really powerful and important in terms of figuring out ways to honor our own feelings, as well as the people that we've lost and how that process can take time in the same way that grieving takes time and space. Yeah. And I think they're connected. I mean, at least for me, they are. And um, I know for other people, they've said the same thing. I mean, there's so many uh, rituals around, you know, honoring ancestors or honoring people who passed away that it's really just about talking about them, you know, mm -hmm. or putting their picture up or, you know, th these aren't like, these aren't um, complicated things, right? They're hard things. They're not complicated things. They're actually quite simple. Um, but you know, I think about Mexican culture on Day of the Dead, you know, and Filipino culture, Filipinos have this similar culture where you sit around and talk about people, you know, just the act of remembering and um, giving voice to your feelings about the person, your memories of them is, is really huge and powerful. And so one of the ways I did that, just to add another tool that has been actually really powerful for me and other people have told me it's been powerful for them is using social media, right? So mm -hmm. I posted a lot about my daughter on my personal page. We created a, a, a group for people who wanted to remember her on Facebook that still has over 400 people in it. And, you know, even years after she passed away, so her 10th birthday is actually coming up this March or in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I have friends who are artists that are going to create art, you know, imagining mm -hmm. what she looked like at 10. I mean, that was their idea. It wasn't mine. But I think because we had, again, I created a container to like for people to just think about it, right? To even just acknowledge that it was happening, that that we still think about her, that she existed. You know, then it sort of leads into other things like people thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll like create this piece of art that like, you know, says what she or just displays what she might've looked like or, or write a story about it or whatever. And I'm fortunate to have like very loving, supportive friends who, um, who'll do that, you know, who, who come up with those things. Um, but without that space, even of just a Facebook group, you know, I don't know if it would have happened because it's just like another, you know, kind of reminder, like, oh, this is happening. This loss is here. It doesn't go away. Um, how do you want to deal with it? So, um, you know, so we have all those tools now too with social media and which is great. Um, and it's really helped, I think, push the culture to like just acknowledging these losses instead mm -hmm. of acting like they didn't exist. Because there are women in the, some of the, the baby loss Facebook groups I'm in who've lost their children like 20, 30 years ago when we didn't have, they had no way of talking about it with anyone outside their inner circle. And some of them have come to these groups saying, this is the first time I've talked about my child in 25 years. Oh. And I can't even imagine what they've been holding this whole time, you know, with people just thinking, oh, they're over it because they don't talk about it. No, it's just because they didn't have the space to talk about it. Now they have the space and now they're talking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so for me, the ritual and the, 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 the grieving process is just about creating space for it, and, which is hard. You know, um, I'm very lucky because I'm, my life situation gives me a lot of flexibility for other folks who have to work nine to five jobs or, you know, it's, it's much more difficult, but I think there are some ways to do that and, and it's necessary to do it, right? Otherwise you have a lot of people walking around with unresolved guilt, uh, grief that causes all kinds of other problems, you know, so. I appreciate you sharing that example because I think it's another really powerful example of the strength of community and how there can be a certain, broadening or deepening of the container like when we give permission for this grief to be felt in an ongoing way and all the pieces of the grief the the memories the feelings the physical reactions that don't have words just all, all of those different manifestations of grief that that permission begets more permission. Like you said, this Facebook group, without that, perhaps there wouldn't be these continuous reminders for other people that have led to other ways of honoring your daughter. And so I, I think there is a, a powerful component of community for many people. There's just a lot of, 
wisdom and support that can come from that kind of community. Something else that you articulated a few moments ago was this idea of people at times being uncomfortable with sadness or bypassing the sad parts of a loss to focus on the celebratory parts and how this is very different when we're thinking about someone who has lived a long life and it feels there's more to celebrate relative to a child because as you said, the loss of a child is, is never happy. And I'm wondering through your grief process, I know you said that you have had a lot of people who've been extremely supportive. If you have noticed in your interactions with people that there has been this tendency to try to shape your experience into something positive. Um, and I, and I ask this because I know that for, for many people who are grieving other people's discomfort with their grief adds another layer of burden to what they're carrying. And I'm just curious to know if that was something that came up for you or has come up for you throughout your, your journey. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think everybody who's lost somebody close to them, you know, gets all these weird, <laughs> I don't even know what to call them. They're, 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 they're well-intentioned, but often strange responses to grief. And, and unfortunately, often in the very early stages, which is when the grief is the most, the pain is the most acute and we are the most raw and sensitive and we really don't need to be hearing these things. So for example, like I remember hearing the day of my daughter's memorial service, you know, a friend of mine who's a mom, she's a really nice person, sweet person. I know she meant well. And I was, I was barely holding it together, you know, and she came up to me and she said, I'm so sorry about the loss of your daughter. I have a friend who just lost their 15 year old son. And I went and told her, well, at least you had 15 years with him. And I just thought, wow, so one, you, you told this other woman that she should be happy that her son died at 15 versus four months. And you used my example of loss to say that. It was just like, I was like, I feel, it feels very weird to me to like, mm. yeah, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've had, I've lost, you know, a couple friends because I felt like they were too early on. Like, it, you know, it's fine. I think when you get to a certain point in grief, maybe a year out, maybe even a couple of years out, but it, even that varies. Everybody's different, right? Some mm -hmm. people might feel like they're ready to hear the more positive things very early on. I was not, I did not want to hear like how my daughter was an angel now and how, you know, she's in heaven or how she's, I didn't want her in heaven. I wanted her to be here. Right. And so, you know, just people saying things like sharing these stories with me about how, um, I don't even remember, like how, um, you know, there, there are theories of like what happens beyond death. Sometimes it helped. It really depended on the person, right? So whether, how close I was to them, how much I felt they knew my daughter, how they were grieving, to be quite honest, because I have a close friend also who actually spoke at my daughter's memorial service. And he was one of her godparents who did share kind of one of those kinds of stories, like his kind of philosophy of how it happens after death. And, and I knew because I know him that this was his way of of making sense of this, right? Making sense of a very senseless thing. So as much as like, you know, that concept, I wasn't really that interested in hearing about. It really does depend. It depended for me on my relationship to that person. Whereas at other friends who I just felt like didn't really get, weren't grieving in the same way I was and would try to say, you know, oh, it's fine. Like she's in a better place and all that. And I was just like, I couldn't hear it. You know, I was like, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. And just stop, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's, you know, there's been, there was always a lot of that. Not, in, not as much for me, thank God, as I feel like other people have told me about. Um, uh, but it, it's always there. But luckily, I feel like I was around more people who would just let me like set the tone or let me and my husband set the tone of how we wanted to talk about it. Um, and then the other side of it is the other the other side of like people wanting to kind of help you get over your sadness quick more quickly is the uh, what I call grief dumping. <laughs> Whereas because we don't have all these spaces to talk about grief, 
when we talk about it, it all kind of comes out, right? So I would be somewhere at a party or like some kind of gathering, you know, this is like months or even years after my daughter's passed away. And someone would come up to me, you know, some acquaintance that I knew and they'd say, you know, I'm really sorry for your loss. And then they would go on to tell me about like their three losses of, of people they had in their lives. And, you know, and of course, like I want to be supportive of other people who've gone through losses, but it, it just felt like it's, you know, sometimes it was in a really inappropriate place, you know, like mm-hmm. in the middle of a crowded like space where people weren't drinking and, you know, like, <laughs> like yeah, that's really the place to do this. But, you know, but again, because we don't have like really um, good structures and spaces mm-hmm. for people to do this on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm then people just create it where, wherever they can because they do, they need to talk about it, right? And so that happened a lot in the, in the early days, in the early years too. I, so I'm, I'm 10 years out from my daughter's death almost. And the first three or five years, I think, you know, every time I would see someone I hadn't seen since she passed away, I, I would kind of brace myself a little because I'm like, are they going to want to like sort of use me as a, you know, free counselor for a little bit because mm-hmm. they need to talk about their grief. But to me, that just shows that we need more places for people to talk about this and not just with another grieving person. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also this idea of asking if someone's in a place to be able to support or, or give you what you need. Right. Because in many ways you're getting that dumping without consent. Someone's just And there's a presumption that you're able and ready and willing to, to be that person, to serve that role. And it's legitimate to not be in a place and to serve that role, regardless of the reason, whether, like you said, it's because it's at this time where people are drinking and dancing (laughs) around and it just doesn't feel like it aligns or, or what, whether it's just not what you feel you're able to offer. And so I think as a, as a culture, we could get better about finding the support we need and also asking, asking permission and being sensitive to the Mm -hmm. fact that when we hear about other people's grief, it can bring up our own. Mm -hmm. And so some of us, many of us, want to have a heads up, want to be able to prepare for that, need to establish certain supports or foundations before we're in a place to hear about someone else's grief. It's also in a way of a short changing of their own grief, right? Because if you're bringing these up, these things up in places that are probably not very conducive to having Mm -hmm. like, so, and I wonder if that might be subconsciously on purpose, you know, like, I don't want to really talk about this for real, So I'll just talk about it in this place where I know I won't have to for very long, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just, yeah. Like I've had people come up to me when I'm about to make a presentation, you know, at a, at a conference and talk to me about stuff. And I'm like, (laughs) uh, and and I, and I haven't come up with this. Luckily it doesn't come up. It doesn't happen often enough that I feel like I have to have a protocol for when I see it coming, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's good. It's only happened a few times, but I feel like I should, especially when, when we get to the point where we're, we need to, we're going to be around each other again in, in person. I probably should come up with a protocol around like, you know, setting a boundary, you know, mm-hmm. asking them to like hold it or like, you know, giving them another, a place to go, maybe to talk about it. But, um, but yeah, it's just, yeah, there's just not enough practice of like how to talk about deal with grief. And so people just, they're trying to figure it out as they go along, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rona, do you have thoughts on, as you said, many of the ways in which we try to support other people in grief are well-intentioned and don't land, are hurtful, make things worse because we're imperfect and we just, again, maybe our own grief is coming up too and that somehow affects how we support each other. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how to respond if we do something that feels like it might've been insensitive or misattuned in a way that can preserve the relationship and also not put too much of a burden on the griever. Um, because of course I, I do think, yes, there is some, some level of ownership that can be important to take when we are grieving over limits and shaping our support network in a way that we need. But at the same time, as you said, when you're in the midst of raw grief and barely holding it together, 
you may not have the words to know exactly what you need until you're met with something that doesn't feel good. And, and so do you have thoughts on, for those of us who are trying to support people who are grieving, if we either get feedback that that didn't land or was hurtful and, or we just get the sense and feel kind of icky about it, that something that we said or did or didn't do or didn't say was just not what we meant to do at all. Do you have thoughts on, on this idea of repair and support? Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know if I have a lot of specific, you know, things that people can say. I mean, I can, I can give you what I would like people to say to me if that happens. And maybe a couple people have said this to me, you know, one is obviously just to apologize for any harm that was done. Um, and then the other thing is just to not make it about you. So if it's, <laughs> If it was, if, you know, you or somebody, you know, was the, the person who said something, you know, unintentionally that created harm or, or hurt someone, apology, obviously, and then not to go into this big explanation of like why you did that or what you thought, because that kind of doesn't matter. It's the impact that matters, right? Not the intention. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, unless the person asked for that, I would say, follow the lead of the, the griever or the person who felt, you know, that they had been done harm what do they need, you know? So one thing that someone has done to me recently, not around grief per se, but um, around a different situation was, you know, they felt like they had done something that um, was harmful to me or potentially harmful to me. And so reached out over email and said, you know, I'm really sorry that I was part of that. Um, and, you know, I wanna be accountable to you as a, as a, you know, person in the community and you don't need to respond to this, you know, if you don't want to. <laughs> and I really appreciated that just like, like, I'm not asking you for anything back. I'm just acknowledging to you what that, what it felt like for me. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong even, maybe it didn't create any harm. You know, in this case, it did not. Um, and you don't need to even respond because that's the, the acknowledgement I think of it is enough. And then letting the other person who is experiencing the harm set the tone and sort of set the, set the standard for what kind of care they want. They might not want anything because that, you know, you, the person doing the harm, sort of overdoing it might be way too much energy that they, then they want to spend. You know, so again, it goes back to the consent mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but I think in a simple apology is enough and just, you know, and, and saying that you're going to learn from it. You mm -hmm. know, I think that's another thing is that this is not just about one person. We're actually trying to change the whole culture. So it's not just like a one individual interaction. It's like, oh, you know, I'm going to try to look at other interactions I've had and make sure I don't repeat this behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of committed action coming up with a way that that experience can be learned from because then it takes it a step beyond the verbal apology and showing through your behavior how, how you're going to further carry out that repair, so to speak, and prevent yourself, or at least try to prevent a similar misstep from happening in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing that I do with people who, you know, this is not um, when they say something harmful but often I get um, people sending me information or offering me, you know, I don't know, books about grief and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, read all the books, read all the articles. <laughs> I'm not the one that needs to read them anymore. It's actually mm -hmm. a bunch of other people that are making it hard for people like me to grieve mm -hmm. that need to read those. So I would appreciate if you, you know, you told other people who are not me, mm -hmm. <laughs> who need to hear this because you know it's like it's like the way I explained it to this one friend who did this recently I said it's sort of like with racism like making it the person of color's issue like oh it's mm -hmm. your problem because you feel the pain of it it's actually not their problem they're the ones who who get the brunt of it but it's the whole system around of white supremacy of racism of other people's racism that makes them feel pain right we don't change that. It doesn't matter how much we support this one person. They're still going to continue to face that harm. So with the grief, grieving culture too, I think it's just like, how do we change that culture so that people who are grieving have more space, have more permission to grieve, have everything, everything from more bereavement time to just like not being, you know, whispered about in, in, in the workplace when they're crying. I mean, there's so many levels of like yes. how they're like grieving people are silenced. And it's like, if we could change all those attitudes or even some of them, it would be a huge, huge relief to people who are in, who are grieving, you know, huge. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I think this, this point you make about some of these parallels in terms of grief and anti-racism work is really 
really relevant. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about how so often there's a desire for white identified people to ask for education from people of color and how it places an additional burden on them when there's already so much that they're negotiating related to bearing the brunt of discrimination and racism and how when you've misstepped and harmed someone who is grieving and you're now overly apologizing, explaining yourself away, it adds another layer of burden to this person who's already in the throes of their grief, trying to educate you, trying to help you not feel so badly about it. Like it just, it just adds an additional layer that doesn't need to be there. And so sometimes what you can do is keep it simple and find other places to go to get more education and to understand the nuances of, of what you said and why it wasn't helpful rather than trying to rely on the griever to teach you. The other thing that came to mind for me as you were talking circled back to something you mentioned earlier, which is nature and the container that nature can hold for us and how they're not being judgment in nature and how for me, that image of applying that container of nature to relationships seems really, really relevant because specifically to this conversation about harm and how to support people is um, for me, just that visual of how grounding and supportive it can feel to lean into the expanse and the spacious spaciousness of nature and how part of what many of us need when we're grieving is that spaciousness, is that ability to lean into that space that has been created. So Rona, I'm wondering if you might be willing to read an excerpt from your writing, The Ritual, because as I said earlier, I think it so powerfully speaks to a lot of the themes we've been talking about so far today. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I'm gonna read from just the beginning of the piece. It's called The Ritual. Once a week, I buy her flowers. Her colors are purple and pink, so I pick blushed colored baby roses, neon Gerber daisies, white lilies with fuchsia centers, violet blue irises and foliage to round out the arrangement, glossy camellia leaves, gray-toned eucalyptus, feathery green ferns. I have my favorite spots to buy the flowers, the grocery store in our neighborhood, the farmer's market when it's the right season. I avoid the cheap, flower, cheap flowers at the farmer's market that I know will die within a day or two. Those aren't good enough for this. A few times a year, a thoughtful friend will drop off flowers from her garden, usually on the more difficult days but I don't expect anyone else to take this task on. This is my job as her mother, though I wish it wasn't. This is how I mother my child. My daughter's name is Naima Kali, like the Coltrane song and the Hindu goddess of creation. She was born on March 25th, 2011, her due date. The nurses said this was a rare thing, but I didn't schedule her birth. It was too sacred an event to coordinate around my common needs. Still, my daughter came right on time and I birthed her the old fashioned way, took no drugs to shield me from the intensity and immensity of labor. I wanted to be fully present during the birth of my first child, wanted to feel it all, pain, ecstasy, fatigue, joy, overwhelm, all. The contractions started in earnest the night before she was born, a drizzly Bay Area spring evening, cool and quiet. There were waves of energy that started in my full womb, rocking me from inside out, drawing guttural moans from a deep primal place inside me. People stared at me wide-eyed as I walked past them in the hospital lobby, leaning heavily on my husband Henry's arm as we made our way to the maternity ward. I felt powerful and vulnerable at the same time, sensing that my body was fully in control, that my mind would need to surrender and let my body do this job that it had been created for. Through the night, the contractions fatigued me as they stretched and opened my womb, my eyelids becoming so heavy that the biggest worry became whether I could stay awake until the end. I kept trying to nap, thinking the real labor was still coming not knowing that I was in the midst of it, that this was it. Then finally, after 12 hours of active labor and more than three hours of pushing, she arrived. I heard my Naima before I ever saw her, for she screamed aloud as she emerged from my body, announcing herself, lungs filling with air, already demanding attention. 
Henry and our midwife caught her as she was born. As they, as they placed her on my chest, I chanted, shouting, my baby, my baby, my baby. Relief and gratitude and love commingled in a deep wave of emotion as my body released her. She was pink, perfect, her rounded moist head lifted slightly as she was placed on top of me. Her eyes, double-lidded, caramel brown and beautiful, just like my husband's, were already open, and she stared straight at me. Naima had an intensity even at birth that will always stay with me. Bonding is a shallow way to describe what happened between me and my daughter at that moment. Our eyes met for the first time and bam, that was it. She was mine, I was hers, we were connected immutably from that moment on. I knew then that I would do anything to keep her safe, happy. Soon Naima was latched onto my breast, her dark pink mouth strong and voracious. Henry and I gazed down at her in awe, both feeling something that, she, that the word love only scratches the surface of. There is a photo of the three of us at this moment, my dark hair damp with sweat, Henry's dark eyes shining with pride. Tiny Naima bundled, bundled in a white, pink, and blue blanket in my arms, our little perfect new family. I often arrange the flowers during a moment of quiet when I'm home, alone. It's a silent prayer that I shape with my hands as I carefully place each blossom and stem in a water-filled vase. This is how I mother my daughter now, but I wish that I could mother her in other, more normal ways. Wish that I could teach her how to tie her shoes or put her clothes on right side out. Wish that I could make tiny pencil marks in the wall in her bedroom to show how much she's grown each year. Wish that I could cook her favorite food for her. Maybe it would, be, maybe it would have been pizza or Olympia or noodles. Or watch my husband teach her how to ride a bike. Wish that I could hear her cry mommy after falling off the jungle gym at the park or comfort her when she has a fever. These are the precious moments that most parents take for granted. The small everyday witnessings of life as their child grows and changes. I wish I could have all these things, but I can't because my daughter, my first and only born, my Naima is not here. She is dead. Thank you, Rona, for reading that. Thanks. One aspect of your writing that I find so powerful is how you talk about ways that you still continue to mother her, even though she's not physically here. And towards the end of that piece, you talk a bit about self-blame and self-doubt and how that often feels like a part of, of mothering too. So for parents who have living children and doubt their parenting or feel guilty about mistakes, that that often is a part of, of parenting. And, and, and that was for me a very powerful articulation because I think so often therapists, non-therapists try to help people not blame themselves when there are these kinds of losses. And so just this reminder that, yes, you try at times to be gentle with yourself and to have compassion and give reminders, and that this is also part of your process. This is part of maintaining your connection and your relationship to to Naima. And so I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share about self-blame or, or doubt, because I know that for many parents who have lost children, there is this thread of wondering what if this, what if that, and, and again, in our society, we can move to try to take that away from people. And I think it's powerful to be reminded that even though we don't necessarily want people to be blaming themselves, that it may be a part of their process. Yeah, I feel like it's something that comes up a lot in the loss groups that I'm part of, um, where, you know, I would say uh, on, a, on a daily, if not <laughs> several times a week basis, some mom gets on there and she's like, could I have done this? Could I have done that? Oh my God, I wish I hadn't done this. And of course, all of us circle around her and say, no, you were a good mother. You know, we all do that reassuring thing. And I think it's actually those two things that are important, right? So obviously if people just went around blaming themselves all the time, that's not helpful, you know? Um, but it's like the balance of things. It's like, you know, maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you weren't the perfect mother. Who is the perfect mother? But you tried your best. But to hear that from other moms, you know, that have gone through the same thing, is really important, right? Again, it's like the relationship and the 
the life experience of the person who's giving that kind of advice versus, you know, someone who doesn't have the same life experience, it can really make a difference, you know? So when another grieving mom or another still mother or mother who doesn't have living children says that to me, I know where she's coming from. You know, I know that she's not just sort of trying to pat me on the back and like reassure me from this place of like being condescending. No, because I know next, next week she might have the exact same doubt and fear and I'm going to say the same thing back to her. So it's that, you know, it's that thing of like um, being there for each other, you know, like knowing that we're all going to have those valleys and those times when we feel really down and blue and hard on ourselves. And then hopefully we'll be able to come back up. And, you know, when other people are feeling down, we'll be able to be the ones to pull them up. So I think going back to the community piece that you mentioned earlier, like we can't actually grieve in isolation. You know, I don't think that that's healthy. I don't know any culture that that does that <laughs> as like a, you know, not as a, as a deliberate practice that has been like a tried and true, yes, this works, like it doesn't actually work. Um, and so uh, we need people to remind us of who we were before the loss and who we can be after the loss, you know, and that it's all, it's all good. It's not like we're, we're worse or better now. We just are with this, like this new, you know, piece of us, this new experience of who we are inside of us and how do we walk with that? And, and kind of, I think of it as building the muscles. Like, like I have this weight of my sadness and my grief and my loss, and I've had to build new muscles to carry it. You know, I don't leave it. I can't leave it anywhere. And, but if I build my muscles up, it can start to feel a little lighter, right? It can start to feel a little less like of a burden and more just like, all right, this is part of, you know, who I am. And, um, you know, and then eventually, hopefully it does become something I can turn into something um, that's, you know, beautiful or something that can at least help other people, which is what I tried to do, you know, writing this piece, which is this piece is more as much for me to process and like get something out um, as it is to, you know, sort of help people or to, to give people some sense of um, that they're not alone, you know, like if it does that, awesome. But first and foremost, it was for me to express and then secondly, it was like, okay, if this helps people, great. And I'm glad that people can relate to it. But I think when you're, as a writer, especially when you, when you are true to your experience and your vision, it will resonate for people because it, it's real, right? It's not fake or shallow or contrived. It's, it's, it's authentic. So, yeah. Rona, while you were sharing that, it reminded me of the power of writing for so many people, even who aren't professional writers for you. And then of course, for many people, writing is just not resonant. It's, it's not, not their thing, but for people who may find themselves drawn to writing as a way to express their grief, as you said, really like for them, not necessarily for other people, like you, maybe there's a combination there too, but I've just known some people who are hesitant to write when they're grieving because for all sorts of reasons, they say, I'm not a writer, or they say, what if it unleashes something that I can't handle? And I don't, I don't know if you have any words of wisdom or anything you want to share about your experience that might be helpful for people who are considering writing as a way to process and be with their grief. Yeah, I, I was not able to write for um, more than 10 minutes, probably the first two years after my daughter passed away. It was just too hard. Um, I would start crying. I would become exhausted. It, it, you know, if, you're, if you're doing it, I don't want to say doing it right as if there is one right way, but if you're doing it to heal, right? Yes, it should bring up stuff. It, <laughs> it will bring up stuff. And so I would say, don't push yourself too hard. You know, like give yourself, you know, half an hour, but maybe you only write for five minutes. That's fine. There's no like rules about you have to like crank out some, you know, 20 page something or other. Um, I didn't write this piece until five years after my daughter passed away. And I only wrote it because I had a friend who's a writer who invited me to, to read um, for a panel she was doing or reading she was doing on motherhood. And I was so touched that she even considered me a mother still. <laughs> and that she wanted to hear my story that I was like well I have to write this right and I, and I felt ready like I, if she had asked me two years before I don't think I would have been ready but it was five years after a lot of things had happened we had moved to a new home you know we had gone through other stuff with fertility and you know so I felt I had gone through a lot of stuff in those five years 
and I felt like I could do it, right? And I also had started writing again um, and, not, and not having it be so painful. So I wrote it pretty quickly and, um, you know, because it was, I think, the right time. And then I, I got to read it and get feedback immediately from people. And, um, you know, so, so, yeah, but I mean, it's, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And um, you can write one line that's fine, <laughs> you know, or you could read, you know, like if, if writing is too hard, then maybe reading other people's work is a little easier and it might inspire you to put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keyboard. Um, but I think the main thing is just to, to give yourself the space. And then I, I'll just share one other story because I, I am, um, you know, sort of semi-professional writer. I don't write for a living. Like that's not how I make most of my money, but you know, I did do publish pieces um, for a while after my daughter died, I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep doing it. I'm like, this is too hard. Like I, I, you know, writing is hard enough and you're writing it, writing about stuff that's really hard and writing after a loss. I was like, I don't know. And then I got a scholarship to go to a, a women's writers conference in uh, up near Seattle. And I met a woman there. It was a very supportive space out of the Hedgebrook community. And I met a woman there who had lost her daughter 20 years earlier. I'm not sure what the circumstances were. And so I shared in this very supportive space that it had been five years at that point since my daughter died. Um, I didn't, wasn't sure if I wanted to keep writing because it was too hard. And should I keep going? You know, it was my like question to the group. <laughs> and this woman, you know, sort of outed herself as another bereaved mom. And she said, she's like, you need to be more kind to yourself. It's only been five years. And just that perspective of her saying it's only been, my head was like, it's already been five years. Mm -hmm. She was like, it's only been five years. And I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> this is a lifelong thing, right? This isn't something that I need to get over. And ironically, her, the permission she gave me to just be okay with the pace that I was going, I was able to write. I was able to write this piece. I was able to write other pieces. So, you know, so it's just, yeah, the, the self-love is, is really important and just not trying to fit whatever you're writing wants to be into some predetermined category, you know? Um, yeah, I, I blogged too for a long time. I, I showed nobody. It's a private blog that I will never show anybody probably. Um, that helped, you know? So mm -hmm. just lots of ways to do it. I appreciate you sharing all of those examples because I think sometimes it just can be, how, be very powerful to have concrete ideas about things people can try on because as you know, there can be such such a desire to do something and so much overwhelm that just hearing other people's stories and things they have found helpful, even if it doesn't resonate or doesn't work, I think can just help things continue to percolate as people try things on. Well, thank you so much for, you know, bringing me on and, and letting me talk about this stuff. And um, yeah, it's, it was helpful for me too. like to, it's stuff I think about all the time, but I don't always write about it or talk about it aloud to very many people. So it's good to put my thoughts into, into words and hopefully they're helpful to you and hopefully they make sense to, <laughs> to you and many other people. <laughs> um, because it's, you know, it's an important thing. Grief is, is really, um, yeah, re grief and unresolved grief are, I think they can be very powerful and they can be very problematic if we don't take care of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really hope that whoever's listening to this has the has or takes the time and the space to take care of your grief, take care of yourself as you're grieving because you deserve it, but also the world needs it. It's actually really important for all of our healing and all of our um, well-being. I think that's a really beautiful note to end on because we are so interconnected. So it's really making space for everyone's grief. It, it impacts us all. And, and the ways that we diminish it and minimize it and don't give voice to us also affects us all. And like you said, there can be so much power in saying the name of someone who's deceased. You know, have you, what have you been thinking about Naima lately? Just like you said, asking questions, letting people know that you are willing and able to talk if they want to. So not forcing it, but to, I've just heard so many people talk about the power of hearing other people say their children's names and, and to ask and to be willing to hear stories. And so I think that is a really important point that this is a collective process and we all play a part in shaping how it goes. Very much so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I just want to thank you again so much for being here today and 
for having this be a very small slice of your your journey and your way of honoring one of your many ways of honoring Naima this month. So thank you so much, Rona. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. It's great to be on. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.